when you have a global manufacturing system with quality problems, it, it affects the entire globe. It is a political problem in the end, because there has to be some recognition of this as a vulnerability in terms of our ability to respond to an outbreak. Not because it hasn't been developed, not because it hasn't been a scientific breakthrough, but because there's been a manufacturing problem. I wasn't kidding when I say it's Groundhog Day all over again. It's business as usual, and same old, same old, whatever cliche you want to think about. The Etherist, Episode 3. FDA, we can't require a company to manufacture any drug or, or even require where they manufacture that drug. That's totally a business decision. Government in action. Uh, I mean, they just had to try these substances in, in field trials with the soldiers. And uh, there was a certain amount of desperation, I imagine. For 30 years, Massimo has delivered powerful monitoring solutions that have expanded the boundaries and capabilities of non-invasive technologies. As an industry leader in pulse oximetry, Massimo technology is renowned for accuracy, arming clinicians with essential knowledge to support patient safety even in challenging patient conditions. Today, Massimo technology encompasses much more than pulse oximetry. Massimo is now addressing the challenges faced by clinicians through a versatile healthcare automation platform poised to streamline workflows and enhance the practitioner and patient care experience. Discover how healthcare automation powered by Massimo can improve your practice. Visit Massimo.com to get started. That's M-A-S-I-M-O.com. Current scholarship puts uh, the total deaths in the Civil War, I think, at about 750,000. And there were twice as many deaths from disease as from battlefield injuries. So disease was a bigger killer than, than the enemy. It's, it's hard to imagine how bad it was. This is A.J. Wright, a frequent contributor to and the unofficial resident historian of anesthesiology news. We asked him to look into the earliest example in American history of an impactful drug shortage. He went back to the Civil War where, he says outmanned and outgunned, the Southern soldiers felt they had something on their side that the northern soldiers couldn't contend with. The southern climate, that was going to be one of their weapons. Union forces would come come into the south and, and just be devastated by, <laughs> by the, the climate and the heat and the, the diseases and so forth. And to an extent, early in the war, they were. During the first year of the war, in early April, 1862, at the Battle of Shiloh on the Tennessee River, in the first siege of Vicksburg in uh, uh, May through July of 1862, the, the troops were just devastated by malaria. Almost three-fourths of the besieging northern soldiers either died of or got sick from malaria at Vicksburg.
but the South's secret weapon backfired. Of course, the Confederate troops were not in much better shape. When we think of malaria now, we think South America or the jungles of Africa. But during the Civil War, it was a major problem in the United States. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, the uh, um, in the South especially. And more than two decades before the discovery of mosquitoes as the vector for malaria, there was no better breeding ground for these pests than the blood-soaked battlefields of wartime, something U.S. soldiers had firsthand experience with already. The U.S. military had experience with, with quinine and malaria in the Seminole Wars in uh, southern Florida. These were a series of engagements to seize the state of Florida from both the Spanish and the Seminole Indians between 1818 and 1858. Because troops were just, you know, hit with malaria and, of course, various other things when they were trying to fight down there. And We've known since the Spanish conquistadors uh, discovered the Sincuna bark. Quinine was the only known treatment for malaria, or at least the fever that malaria induces. One account describes how the Sincuna bark was used to effectively curb a malaria epidemic in Rome in 1638. And Je- their Jesuit missionaries took it back to Europe. Thousands of people had died. But the treatment is more commonly known as quinine, an extraction of Sincuna bark developed by two French researchers in the early 1800s. And so by the time the Civil War started in 1861, quinine was known around the world pretty much as an effective prophylactic for malarial fevers. The regimental surgeons were given at the start of the war 220 gallons each of quinine. But it wasn't enough. These stocks were quickly exhausted as the troops moved into the south in the spring and summer of 1862. After the defeats at Vicksburg and Shiloh, the U.S. Surgeon General William Hammond knew that to win the war, they would need to prevent this kind of disease. The way the North dealt with it was to um, ramp up production. Hammond created um, the U.S. Army Laboratory in two locations, one in New York State and one in Philadelphia, to oversee the uh, uh, manufacture and uh, testing the purity and and so forth uh, of the medicines that they would need. And to actually make the medicine? The Army contracted with two um, private firms in Philadelphia to manufacture all of this quinine and and opium and various other medical stocks that they needed. The plan was so successful that it wasn't long before. These stewards were uh, issuing um, uh, quinine calls, as they called them every morning. Uh, Quinine would be mixed in barrels of whiskey, and all the soldiers would come by and get their allotment of whiskey mixed with quinine. And what of the Southern plate? The uh, Confederate Surgeon General Samuel Moore quickly realized that Uh, The South was going to need supplies of quinine and... The only problem was that the South lacked the industrial infrastructure to create this medicine themselves. They had to import it, of course. The North quickly, as the war began, blockaded Southern ports, and uh, the South had difficulty getting supplies, medical and otherwise, through this blockade. They even went so far as to smuggle quinine through in the heads of dolls or in the heads of slaughtered animals. Through raids and piracy of northern caches, the South was able to steal some supply. But it wasn't enough. So Samuel Moore decided they uh, needed to find a substitute 
for quinine. He appointed a Confederate surgeon named Francis Porter to uh, uh, survey plants and trees of the South and come up with suggestions on ones that would be of medical use, especially as a substitute for quinine. And he ended up writing a book. Resources of the Southern Fields and Forest, which is still used today because it was so well done. It's 600 pages and covered 3,500 plants. And, and soon after it was finished? Surgeon General Moore sent out the word to medical officers and all the units to begin collecting and drying the uh, samples of these plants. And, and they, they were hopeful at first it would work. But... Unlike the North? The South had no way of doing clinical trials, no laboratory. Uh, I mean, they just had to try these substances in in field trials with the soldiers. And uh, there was a certain amount of desperation, I imagine. They settled on dogwood and it didn't work. one of the reasons the North was able to win the war, it could be argued, was its ability to ramp up manufacturing of necessary medical supplies more quickly and in greater volumes than the South. This really became the first large-scale drug manufacturing in the United States. Um, I mean, of course, patent medicines had been made here and there um, in mostly New England and so forth, but the sheer amount uh, of drugs, not just quinine, but opium and others, Uh, We really see the first large-scale drug manufacturing, and you also had government testing of these drug stock. So it's one of the many interesting uh, medical results of the Civil War is uh, this kind of ramping up of industrial-scale drug production. Innovation at Maspo never stops. Sedline brain function monitoring and O3 regional oximetry are available together en route, a single patient monitoring and connectivity hub. With Sedline, clinicians gain key insights on the state of the brain under anesthesia through bilateral data acquisition and processing of EEG signals. O3 regional oximetry supports clinicians by monitoring cerebral oxygenation, offering essential information on changes in tissue oxygenation. The root platform brings these two powerful and complementary monitoring technologies together in one display. Discover a more complete picture of the brain. Visit Massimo.com to get started. That's M-A-S-I-M-O.com. AJ described how both in the North and the South, the government turns its attention to the problem and directed resources at solving it. So what is the government doing to prevent and address these issues now? Well, we thought we'd just ask them. So Harry took a little trip down I-95 from Brooklyn to Silver Spring, Maryland, the location of the FDA Thank you much. Where he met with... Captain Jensen, nice to meet you. Thank you for taking the time. I'm Captain Valerie Jensen, and I'm the Associate Director for Drug Shortages at FDA. I've been after the FDA for a long time to sit down and talk with me. They have an outsized role in this problem in either solving it or failing to solve it. But the thing I really wanted to ask them, what about the award? I wanted the story about the award they give out every year that, according to their website, 
recognizes efforts of drug companies and manufacturers who have worked in cooperation with FDA and have implemented strategies to help provide a steady supply of medically necessary drugs for patients at a time when critical drug shortages pose a challenge for healthcare providers and patients nationwide while maintaining a commitment to quality manufacturing. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Fresenius Cabe is the most recent winner of that award. We've actually given six rewards since we instituted oh, okay. that program. Um, Fresenius Cabe helped with the, uh, hurric- the hurricane shortage, uh, hurricane-related shortage, sorry. Yeah. Um, we had you know the severe shortage of IV saline. Um, Fresenius Cabe stepped forward to help with a temporary import. And approving temporary import is one of the few tools that the FDA does have to help ease these shortages. If we don't have enough U.S. supply, we can actually look for overseas supply that might be able to help fill the gap. This doesn't happen very often. I talked to one guy in Kentucky who said in his 40 years as a pharmacist, he'd only seen it once in the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Maria. First of all, it's not as simple as just finding the product and then paying for it and bringing it into the country. We need to evaluate that product really carefully. We need to make sure that that product doesn't have any major differences from the U.S. approved version and make sure that any differences are pointed out to healthcare professionals so that the product can be used safely. Um, Also, we look at the labeling. We look at the manufacturing facility as well because we need to make sure that that facility that's being used overseas meets our standards. And while that's not a bad approach for the FDA... It can make this importing option too difficult and time-consuming. Now, tying into this is that you'll hear people say, well, why don't we just import them from Canada or Europe? This is Dr. Beverly Phillip, who we heard from in the previous episode, a practicing anesthesiologist and the first vice president of the ASA. But the issue is if these sites are not yet up and running, they have to get this up and running. They have to have it checked out that it's actually clean and safe. And by the time they can get these drugs... Uh, the manufacturing process up and running, the shortage is over. So they've spent all this time and finances setting up a production system and then no market. And that's because the FDA is so rigorous about safety above all else, and they say so. But what generally happens is that the other countries don't have enough to share with with the United States market because it's so large. And that's Dr. Aaron Fox, the drug shortage specialist who we've heard from in previous episodes. It's literally that there just isn't enough. But what's interesting to note about the Fresenius-Cabe deal is that even after the shortages caused by Maria were alleviated, Fresenius stayed on in the U.S. system. Effectively, they fast-tracked through the typically very lengthy approval processes required by the FDA. That's right. They're an approved manufacturer for sailing for the U.S. market. So if you want to look at the bright side when it comes to Maria, at the very least, it added another manufacturer to the U.S. supply chain. It addressed indirectly the core problem, the lack of competition, the lack of redundancy, the lack of variety in the supply of our drugs. But what is the government doing to deal with shortages that aren't caused by natural disasters? If you look at the trends, statistically, the drug shortages were trending up significantly until 2011 when Fifth Asia was passed. That's Michael Gagno again. He's the director of pharmacy practice and quality at the ASHP. And the FIDASIA he's referring to is an acronym. It stands for the Food and Drug Administration Safety and Innovation Act, FDA-SIA FIDASIA. When 67-year-old Pamela Gunter started treatment for breast cancer, her doctor knew it would be a grueling fight. He also knew it was a fight she could win. 
What you're hearing here is former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid speaking to the open floor of the Senate. Pamela's doctor put her on Taxol, a common chemotherapy drug. Back in 2012, the nation was in the grips of the worst drug shortage crisis it had ever seen. The prognosis was good. Then one day last spring, no more Taxol. Doctors couldn't get it. Drug suppliers couldn't say why. So Pamela's doctor was forced to use a much more expensive and much less effective course of treatment. The cancer spread. By the time Taxol was available again, Pamela was dead. Finally, Dr. Woodcock, I just have to ask a question. January 1st of 2012, I lost access to a low-cost over-the-counter asthma inhaler. When am I going to get it back? And that's a Republican congressman from Texas, Dr. Michael Burgess, questioning officials at the FDA. Drug shortages affect all of us. The worst thing you want to hear is that there's a shortage of that drug to take care of that child. Not because it hasn't been developed, not because it hasn't been a scientific breakthrough, but because there's been a manufacturing problem. And that's the former Democrat from Maryland, Barbara Mikulski. The bill enjoyed broad bipartisan support. So over the last five years, uh, the number of these drug shortages has nearly tripled. Uh, And even though the FDA has successfully prevented uh, an actual crisis, uh, this is one of those slow-rolling problems that could end up uh, resulting in uh, disaster for uh, patients uh, and uh, healthcare facilities all across the country. But the problem back then was so bad that Obama, on Halloween 2011, signed an executive order. Given the FDA many of the expanded powers that can be found in Article 10 of FDASIA, which Congress enshrined into law nine months later. Specifically, to speed the importation of drugs from outside the U.S. system, increase powers to provide licenses to new drug manufacturers, both of which we saw in the case of Fresenius Cobby. On paper, Title 10 also grants the FDA increased powers to force drug manufacturers to notify them of impending shortages. And that was supposed to be enough. That was supposed to solve the problem. But here we are, almost a decade later, and... Very little has changed. Once again, Dr. Yuram Nguru, a pediatric oncologist at Sinai, Baltimore, and core faculty at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics. I mean, I wasn't kidding when I say it's Groundhog Day all over again. And the situation is not getting better. To highlight that fact, I want to read an email that I got from Dr. Yuram and Guru the day before we were to release this episode. Hi. I thought you would like to know that this evening we were notified of a national shortage of vincristine, the single most widely used chemotherapy agent in childhood cancer. Vincristine is utilized by children with nearly every type of cancer, including leukemias, lymphomas, brain tumors, bone tumors, musculoskeletal tumors, neuroblastoma, Wilms tumor, etc. This is truly a nightmare situation. There are only two major producers of vincristine. One has discontinued production, while the other is experiencing manufacturing delays. When you look at the data for the number of drugs in short supply each quarter, it just kind of hangs out. It's always elevated. Nearly every child with cancer in the U.S. will be affected by this shortage. 
you know, as of December 31st, 2018, which was the last quarterly data. And around the time that I conducted this interview. There was 251 active drug shortages. The quarter before that, it was 220. The quarter before that, it was somewhere in between. And so uh, the, a lot really hasn't changed. And if you stop listening to this episode and you go to the FDA website or the ASHP website, you'll find most likely between 150 and 200 active drugs on shortage. So what exactly did Fidesia do? What did it accomplish? Well, the biggest part of it was that requirement that manufacturers notify of impending shortages. So the law requires six months in advance of a supply disruption. And sometimes six months is obviously not possible, as was the case with Hurricane Maria. But some say the law doesn't do enough. There's no teeth behind that. Okay, and then what is the penalty if they don't? If they don't notify us, then we, we, FDA, are required to send the company a non-compliance letter telling them, um, you know, they failed to notify us of a a potential shortage or a shortage. And we post that letter on our drug shortage website. So they basically send a stern letter and they post that letter on their website for everybody to read. Now, the FDA is on our side in this. It's better since 2012, since that law went into effect, but it is still need more. We still do not know, for example, at what plant any particular drug is being made uh, and what percentage of the work product is being made at any force. This is the kind of information we know so we have an idea of how long. In 2018, the ASA held a drug shortage summit to come up with the groundwork for solving these regulatory impasses. They invited leaders from the American Hospital Association, the ASHP, the FDA, and the CDC. And out of that, put together a white paper, which we uh, call the drug shortages, highlighting it that is a matter of national security, that we need to improve the resilience of the nation's clinical infrastructure. They broke the issue into four main steps, improving communication across the system, giving drug manufacturers the freedom to produce a wider variety of drugs, giving better incentives to create manufacturing redundancy, and simplifying the manufacturing process so recreating a downed plant would be easier. And what is happening in parallel is a program to uh, standardize the drug solutions that are being prepared. So instead of having a number, 10 different types of this particular drug, they will only make it in a very limited number of concentrations. Beverly said all of this planning was only good in theory because actionable solutions were still not in reach. But the uh, stakeholder task force has, again, asked the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, uh, to do a study to really look at the supply chain from end to end, from from the uh, foreign-sourced active pharmaceutical ingredient down through all the middle people, the manufacturer and all the middle people and down to the the end-using organization. Beverly pointed out that national security could be a big motivator for changing current laws around the manufacturing process. Well, that wasn't just a typical play to the political base in Washington. It is another one of the very concerning sides of this ongoing crisis. So let's talk about the, the, the reason why we're here today, drug shortages. How important is that for you and the center. It's, it's very important, and we've published on this uh, before in the past, specifically looking at what would happen during an infectious disease emergency when there was a shortage of a critical pharmaceutical or a vaccine. And we really looked at and tried to study and understand some of the supply chain issues that occur. 
So my name is Amish Adalja. I'm a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and a practicing infectious disease critical care and emergency medicine physician. And that first voice you heard is James Pruden, the editorial director of Anesthesiology News. He sat down with Amish early in our reporting to get a better understanding of what the bigger picture concerns might be with these drug shortages. If you look anytime on the shortage list on the FDA website, there are multiple antibiotics, some of which would be crucial in a biological uh, event, uh, that are always on shortage. So this is something that we do track and think of very uh, importantly is tied to national security and resiliency from infectious disease threats. Hamish thinks that the worst could still be around the corner if more attention in Washington and around the country isn't given to these supply chain concerns. There has to be a willingness to actually understand these problems at a very more detailed and granular level, trying to understand where the supply choke, choke points are and where we are most vulnerable. What would be a good way to address it? I do think that there has been increasing recognition that we have to get better at this because we are continually faced with threats of outbreaks, emerging infectious diseases, pandemics. The Ebola outbreak in 2014 really galvanized people to think about how we're going to care for these patients in the United States. Uh, now, is this a political situation? Do politicians have to come to this realization? Do medical... Honestly, if, you, if we're waiting for the politicians to do anything, you're going to have a long wait based on what I see it in D.C. So It is a political problem in the end because there has to be some recognition of this as a vulnerability in terms of our ability to out, respond to an outbreak. And sometimes infectious disease emergencies aren't thought of in the same way as a nuclear, as a nuclear attack, for example. And I do think that when you get people thinking about what the consequences of an infectious disease could be. Remember, we're about 100 years out from 1918 influenza where 100 million people died. That's more than all those wars put together that you can think about that we're all preparing, you know, that duck and cover, all of that stuff. But we don't do that for infectious disease. But the Trump administration is looking to import from Canada, and none of the Democratic candidates that are running have these problems on their radar, at least as of mid-October 2019. Former Vice President Joe Biden wants to put a cap on prices if a drug is only made by one company. Former Congressman John Delaney wants to hit drug makers with an excise tax if they're charging more for the drug in the U.S. than they do in other countries. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand wants to create a pharmaceutical czar who would oversee audits of the drug industry. And Senator Amy Klobuchar wants to ban a practice called pay for delay in which drug makers pay generic manufacturers to keep their competing drugs off the market. It is true. Skyrocketing drug prices for certain brand name and highly sought after generic drugs have priced some patients out of the market. But making drugs cheaper, according to Uram, is what got us into this mess in the first place. Speaking at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, Yoram outlined a fairly substantial case for the fact that in our quest to make drugs cheaper, we've actually made them less available. He explained that about two decades ago, medical oncologists would buy up available chemotherapy drugs, hoard them, if you will, and then sell them at a higher rate. So in 2003, in an effort to curb the high costs, the federal government stepped in and passed the so-called Drug Act. And what the Drug Act did was it set a ceiling on Medicare reimbursement of sterile injectables based on this complicated formula called average sales price plus 6%. Maybe not so complicated. And by having Ameri what amounts to America's largest insurer cap what it's willing to pay for generics. Some pharmaceutical companies may have less of an incentive to produce these cheaper generics and they may divert production to more profitable branding drugs. And he went on to show some slides that provided 
a visual. In 2004, there were only 58 drugs in short supply, and by 2011, there were 267. In the worst case, it can flip the whole market on its head, creating the kind of skyrocketing drug prices that the presidential campaigners are highlighting. We have to keep in mind that unlike other countries that set national wholesale prices for each drug, here in the United States, we leave drug pricing, including generics, up to market competition among pharmaceutical companies. But this idea of competition, it's a bit of a non-issue. You see a surprising number of these life-saving drugs are made by a single company. So there's no competition, and they can charge whatever the heck they want. So while presidential hopefuls appeal to their bases in an ever-downward slope of lower and lower drug prices, they may actually be making those drugs less available. Not because patients are priced out of the market, but because the drugs just won't be made. This episode began with an example of the government intervening into the quinine shortage during a time of war. And during that time, the government contracted directly with private manufacturers to make sure there was enough of the drug in production or in their supply that their soldiers would be taken care of. And while that might not be an option here, simply because, as Captain Jensen said, FDA, we can't require a company to manufacture any drug or, or even require where they manufacture that drug. That's totally a business decision. And it's not as simple as importing the drug either. Because safety issues and concerns aside, this industry operates on razor-thin margins everywhere. You know, even, even countries that negotiate centrally for pricing um, are still having problems with, with drug shortages. So when you have a global manufacturing system with quality problems, it, it affects the entire globe. And it's a global problem where we can't rely on market forces to dictate or to self-adjust. And the government lacks the power to step in and dictate or adjust for them. So exactly how are we supposed to get past these drug shortages? So what are the solutions? Where can we go from here? How can we solve this problem? And what are providers doing today to deal with it? All that and more in the next and final episode of The Etherist. The Etherist was created by Michael DePoe Wilson, our executive producer. And our producers, W. Harry Fortuna, Megan Lee Callahan. Music was by David Cullen and Andrew Russell. And we had help from Adam Marcus, David Bronstein, Marie Rosenthal, Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Matt White, Martin Barbieri, Kwangy Chung, Sophia Lee, Betty Zong, and Kristen Janicone. And special thanks to our sponsor, Massimo. I'm James Pruden, the editorial director of Anesthesiology News. Thanks for listening.